going to continue our series called The Path of the Exile. And basically what we're doing is we're walking through the book of 1 Peter. And we've been through, uh, we're in three or four sermons in. And uh, last week, Pastor Aaron talked about salvation because we hit 1 Peter chapter 10, 11, and 12, or verse 10, 11, and 12, I believe, of chapter 1. And so did an amazing job covering that. And today we're just going to continue with that. And I really believe that this, I, I really do believe there's going to be some before, before and after moments for people here today. And so that's, that's my expectation. And so I just want to encourage you to almost like be on the edge of your seat spiritually on the inside. You don't have to do it literally, but on the inside, just be on the edge of your seat. Like, God, what do you want to speak to me today? Because I believe that he is going to speak today. I heard some time ago about some sociologists who wanted to do an experiment and they wanted to try to, they, they just were curious uh, why it is that some people don't take time to do good things and help people and other people do. And so they decided to set up an experiment to just try to test some things out. And, and uh, so no better place to do that than at a Bible college with Bible school students. And so, so they went there and they set up this scenario. And they, they took three groups of Bible school students, groups of 10, and the first group they brought into a room and they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to preach a sermon on the Good Samaritan story. And how many of you guys have heard of the Good Samaritan story? Most of you have, but if you haven't, here's how the story goes. Jesus was trying to teach some people in his day what it really means to love and what it really means to be a neighbor, and so he told them a story, and it went like this. There was a, a guy who was walking down the road, and he was beaten up and robbed and left half dead, left there on the side of the road. And by, by chance, a priest comes along, a religious leader comes along, and sees the man who's beaten up on the side of the road, and instead of helping the man, he passes by on the other side and, and just goes on his way. And then there's also a Levite who was also a church leader of some sort. He's walking down the same road, encounters the beaten man, left for half dead, and he sees him and he too passes by on the other side. But then the Samaritan man comes and in Jesus' day, the, the Jews who he was talking to, they did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were actually the enemy. They were the despised ones. And here this Samaritan comes, and in Jesus' story, comes and helps the man, binds up his wounds, puts him on his own animal, pays for him to be uh, helped, and, and takes him to an inn. And Jesus does this amazing switcheroo where he creates this story where their villain actually becomes the hero, and he was trying to paint the point that it's not about what your position is or what your status is or what boxes you check religiously. What it really is is about do you really love people? And so he tells this story, you know, do you really love people? And so that's the story that they wanted these Bible school students to preach. And so they, they said, here's the deal. We want you to preach this uh, message but here's the problem. You are late. You've got to go across campus, rush, you leave right now, go right now. And so they sent them off and they, they ran to the other side of the campus because they had to, they said, if you're late, you're going to get a bad grade if you don't go preach this right now. And so they had staged the very scenario of the story they were going to be preaching by placing somebody who looked like they were injured on the way from one room of the campus of one building to the next. And so there, as these Bible school students are rushing across campus to preach the message of the Good Samaritan, there's an injured man sitting on the side of the sidewalk. And they, so they took this group and they said, you're late, go. And one out of the 10 stopped to help. 
So they took a group, a second group of 10, and they said, they told them the same story, and they said, okay, we want you to go preach this uh, message right now, but here's the thing. You're not late, but if you don't hurry, you might be late. And so they created another story, and out of those 10, four out of the 10 stopped. Then they took the last group of 10 people, and they said, we want you to preach the Good Samaritan story, but you have all the time you need Take all day if you want. Whenever you get over there, that's when you're going to be ready to preach the message. And they were six times more likely to stop and help the injured man. And so they came up with this conclusion. Again, it's not a, uh, you know, it's just a sociological experiment. But they came up with this conclusion. Number one, people do the right thing when they have time to do it. But most people just don't make time to do the right thing. Because how many of you guys know we're busy in our lives? And, but if we could carve out time to do the right things, a lot of people would. The second thing they concluded was people just don't like hypocrites. Because how many of you guys know they were preaching the very story that they were not living out, right? And that leads us up to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start off in chapter 2 and then we're going to back up, okay? So we got a lot of ground to cover today. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 says, so put away all malice and all deceit, and here's that word, hypocrisy. Now, these other things are all kind of wrapped up in this word, hypocrisy. And come on, we just admit it. Nobody likes it when you see a hypocrite. Nobody likes that, and we kind of have a box that we put them in. And it says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then gives us this encouragement. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I think when all of us start following Jesus, and some of us have been following Jesus longer than others, but when we start following Jesus, I think most people really want to grow into maturity. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to grow into maturity. And so, because we know that it'd be really awkward, I'm, I'm 42 years old, it'd be really awkward if at 42, I'm still in a diaper, okay? That's just really awkward. Sorry for that mental image. Exactly. I, he knows what I'm talking about. So, it'd be really awkward, so we want to grow up. We don't want to be in a diaper spiritually. We want to grow up. And so, then we go on and we read something like this. So, if you back up 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 13... We see this passage. We want to grow. How many of you guys just admit you do want to grow spiritually? We, anybody just admit that? I do want to grow spiritually. So then we'll read this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Your, your translation may say something like this. Gird up the loins of your mind. That, you're like, what in the world is that? Well, it literally just means to roll up your sleeves. Let's get serious about this. That's what it's saying. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here it is. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you be holy for I am holy. Has anybody ever been intimidated by that? (laughs) I mean, God is holy, but now God is telling us to be holy in all our conduct. And so we read that and we're like, well, I I want to grow up. I want to be spiritually mature. And here it's saying I need to be holy in all my conduct. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I I, I got to lean into this. And it says, and you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now we're we're in this series, The Path of the Exile, because we're we're really living as, as if we were exiles in Babylon, much like the day 
of Daniel and all of those guys in, in those days. And Peter's using this to the church even in the New Testament, that you're living in a foreign land. And so it says, be holy in all of your conduct. And so, so here's what happens. So many of us, we want to grow spiritually, and so we start to do the right things. We start to read our Bibles. We start to pray. We, we start to attend church. Some of us may even fast, you know, some, and we, we do all the stuff that we're supposed to do, and we start to live a holy life. We serve, we give, we do all this stuff, and, and we, we, we start to try to grow and to live a holy life. But something happens to almost every person who does this. Something happens. Eventually... When you're, when you're going through all of these things and you're checking all of these boxes, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm, I'm, do, I'm, go, I'm doing all this stuff, and eventually it rings hollow. Eventually you have this feeling that, it's kind of an empty feeling. Like eventually you have this guilty feeling like, I'm trying, but am I doing enough? Has anybody ever had that thought before? Like, I'm trying, but am I really doing enough? I mean, am I really holy in all of my conduct? And you start, you start to have this thought, like, I mean, if we're just honest, no matter how much I try, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can live holy in all of my conduct. And we start to feel guilty because we're just not that good at it, if we're honest. We start to feel guilty that we're not doing enough. And so we try harder for a while. How many of you guys have been through this cycle before? So we try harder for a while. We try harder for a while. We start checking off the boxes that, that we know we're supposed to do. And then here's what happens to a lot of people, the majority of people. They end up looking at people who are checking, say, 20 boxes. And then they're looking at people who are checking 10 of the boxes. And they're saying, there's really not a lot of difference. Or I don't know if it's worth my time to go that far. Maybe I'll just settle in to try to figure out what it looks like to live an okay, decent spiritual life where I, I know I can't do all of it, but what can I do? And so we start to settle into a life where we, we want to be a follower of Jesus, but we, we know we can't do it so well, and so we don't try as hard. And we start to ask this question, do I really need to be all in? Or is it okay if I find a, a middle ground where I can go to church most of the time, if I'm honest, some of the time, I, I can give, you know, I can do all this stuff, but I don't necessarily need to go all in. And this reminds me, do we have any Royals fans in the building? Any, any Royals fans? Okay, I, I don't believe you because I didn't hear a single noise out of you guys. All right, I'm just checking. All right, some people. It reminds, let me take you back to 2015. How many of you guys remember 2015? Anybody? Anybody still remember 2015? And all the, the, the run-up of, of that experience. And man, I, I just remember watching these games and watching that run and watching, watching Hosmer steal that base, right? I mean, how many of you guys remember all of that stuff? Can you guys put yourself back there just for a little bit? Just, just for a moment. I know we've got the Chiefs that are next week, but just for a second, let's go back to, to, the, to the Royals and to remember that. Last night, one of our worship leaders just happened to be wearing a Royals hat, and, and I was like, man, it's just, you just led by the Spirit tonight. And so, 
So just take yourself back there. How many of you guys would just admit you were a little bit crazy during that time? Anybody just admit that? Like your whole focus kind of turns towards that because your team is, is doing it. And so, so, they, so they go all the way. They go to the, the, the World Series and they win. And then how many of you guys were at the parade? Was anybody at the parade? How many of you guys were? Come on, if you're at the parade, lift up your hand. How many of you guys were at the parade? Several of you guys. I was too. I was there. I, I remember being out there and I'm like, I mean, I'm right up there just a few rows deep and watching all of these people go by. And we're there with like, I don't know, what did they say? There was like 15 million people out there or something like that. I can't remember the exact number, something like that, guys. I was there. I was one of them. I was one of the 15 million. Took my whole family. We went out there and just, I mean, it was crazy. But instead of me just telling you about it, I was there. I actually recorded some of the parade. I'm going to take you to just the front row seat of what I was experiencing just to help you relive it just a little bit. So let's kind of get caught up in that moment again. Let's play it. All right, we'll just stop it right there. All right, stop it right there. We're not gonna watch the whole parade, guys. Even that'd be fun, that'd be fun. How many of you guys can remember that moment and you're just like cheering up and, and uh, I mean, it was just, I mean, just an amazing experience. We need another parade, don't we though? I mean, we need another one, just saying. <laughs> so all of that, all of that excitement, I remember being back there. Here's the problem. I didn't know who any of them were. I was cheering just as much for that office staff coming through. I'm like, hey, it's the office staff. Because if I'm honest, I am not a baseball fan. I am not a baseball fan at all. I, I, I know I've just made some enemies, but you have to love me. Love your enemies, okay? So 
I didn't know. They're driving by in these trucks. I'm like squinting to see what number is that? Who is that? I don't know. I knew a couple of them, but I didn't really, I didn't know who it was. But I'm out there cheering like I had been along for the ride the whole time, right? What, what would you call me? You'd call me a fair weather fan, right? Now, now, before you start hating too much, how many of you guys would just admit that when the Chiefs are down 24-0, some of you shut off the television? Come on. You know, some of you guys... Yeah, so I'm just saying, let's be fair about this, but, but, but I, I haven't watched a baseball game since 2015. I'm just being real. I'm a total bandwagon, fair weather fan when it comes to baseball, okay? That's just the reality of it. But if you would have saw me at the parade, you would have thought I'd been all in the whole time. Has anybody seen where I'm going with this? You see, some of us, it's easy to be a fan when everybody's wearing the same shirt. It's easy to be a fan when there's a parade. It's easy to be a fan when your team is winning. But what about the 30 years when they don't win? And see, some of us, and here's the deal, I'm gonna be real rough today just for a moment, but some of us have just settled into becoming consumer Christians. Where we're fair weather fans, when there's something exciting that we are interested in that God is doing, we'll jump on the bandwagon. But we're not there through the hard times. We wanted to live a holy life, but somewhere we just kind of settled in. And so, now, now some people though, some people are the exception to this. And we've got some of those people here. Some people decide, nope, I'm not going to settle in and be a Fairweather fan. I'm not going to just be a consumer Christian. I'm going to show up to church every single week. I might even show up to all three services. I, I might show, I'm going to give, I'm going to serve, I'm going to go on a mission trip. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to fast when people fast. I'm not going to, I'm going to do everything I can and I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go after God. I'm going to read my Bible when I don't feel like it. I'm going to sing when I don't feel like it. I'm going to do all these things and all of those things are good. And as, as you start to do those things, there starts to be a separation between group A, who are the fair weather fans, and group B, which are the people who are, and they look alive, they're, they're, they're going for it. And their conduct starts to separate. Eventually, group B, you start, you notice, man, they're at everything. They seem to be really falling after God. Group A, you start to have doubts about. You start to say, well, I wonder where the priorities are. And there starts to be a separation between group A and group B. And, 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 and that's kind of natural. Group A starts to develop this reputation for being fair weather fans. And group B has this reputation for being alive. But something interesting happens. I'm going to pull out of 1 Peter for just a second, and we're going to jump into Revelation. Something interesting happens in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's look at it. It says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who is of the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Point number one is this. Reputation means nothing. And I know that's a pretty strong statement. And I know that some people could push back legitimately on that to some degree. But I really want to say it strong for the point that I want to make today. 
Reputation, according to this scripture, it doesn't matter if you have the reputation of being alive, if you're dead on the inside. It doesn't matter if you checked half the boxes or all the boxes. It doesn't matter even if you're in group A or group B if under the surface you're actually dead. There's not a lot going on there. So you can look like you have a lot going on or not look like you have a lot going on. That's not the issue. Reputation means nothing. And I could say it this way. It's really bad when you're a hypocrite and everybody knows it. But it's worse when you're a hypocrite and nobody knows it yet. And too many of us are content with being a hypocrite that nobody knows it yet. And we have a reputation of being alive, but on the inside, we're dead. Now, we, we, and I think we confuse this because sometimes we think of being a hypocrite as saying one thing yet doing another. That's not what being a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is not saying one thing and doing another. A hypocrite is doing one thing yet being another. And so we, we have to wrestle with this in a strong way. So we want to live holy lives, not hypocritical lives. I think that's where most of us are at. We really do want to live holy lives, not hypocritical lives. So how do we do that? Well, first we have to understand where holiness begins. But, but before we get to that, we have to understand what holiness actually even is. And so there's this video, and I showed something similar to this a few weeks ago, but I've been saving this one for several months because I saw this. I thought, man, this is so good. The kids are with us. It's a little cartoony, so it'll help them a little bit too. But I thought it did a great job of explaining what holiness is. It's about six minutes, so settle in. Let's watch. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, the hot spot of God's presence. 
And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. 
So that's a lot of stuff right there, right, about holiness. But I think we need to lay down, down the foundation for that. Another way to look at holy, you know, the Bible talks about God being holy, and the word holy literally means set apart. God is set apart from his creation. So what, what's a way to look at this? Well, let me just give you a fun way to look at this, being set apart for a special purpose, for a special reason. Years ago, my, my youngest daughter, she, she was about four or five years old, and, and like a lot of kids during that age, sometimes they'll have trouble going to sleep at night. And so my job as a dad was to come and to tell her stories and to help her get to sleep. And so one particular night, I, I was laying down with her, and I just decided to tell her a story, and I randomly grabbed one of her stuffed animals that she had just got for her birthday or something like around Easter time or something like that, and I started to tell this story with this rabbit. And this rabbit I named in the story, I named him Mr. Unbeknownst. And so Mr. Unbeknownst started to go on an adventure. And I went through this story, and, and my daughter took to this, to this little rabbit, and this became, how many of you guys have ever had a kid that just, they have a thing that's their thing, whether it's a blanket or a stuffed animal, this became her thing. And Mr. Unbeknownst, I just start telling Mr. Unbeknownst stories every single night with this rabbit. So I've got a picture of her uh, with this rabbit. You guys can go ahead and put that up there. There she is. She loves Mr. Unbeknownst. And so uh, years, I mean, we're talking about years and years. This rabbit goes with us on vacation. This rabbit has traveled the United States. This rabbit is everywhere. One time uh, we had forgotten, left Mr. Unbeknownst at Pastor Aaron's house, and I had to drive back at midnight. To, I didn't have to, but I did. I drove back to go get this this little rabbit and uh, Mr. Unbeknownst. And I, I actually have him right, right here. This is Mr. Unbeknownst. He's looking a little worse for wear these days, you know? He's been, he's been loved a lot. And so I started to get concerned about Mr. Unbeknownst because he's the only one that, that she, I mean, if, if we lose him, if he gets ripped up, and so I started to look. I was like, I wonder if I can find another Mr. Unbeknownst just in case. Because how I many you know parents, sometimes you have to make a little switcheroo, right, okay? Just saying, sorry kids, it happens. But anyway, um, <laughs> That, that fish has not been alive for 25 years. I'm just telling you. So, <laughs> Sorry, that was not. Sorry, Paris. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I started to get concerned. So I started looking on the tag, trying to find, where do I find this bunny just in case? Couldn't find any information. I started looking all over the internet. For months, I could not find Another thing, I, we got it like at the dollar store or something. I could not find who manufactured this thing. I looked all over the place until finally months later, I scoured and, and somehow, and there was no information to go off of, but I've somehow stumbled upon this, this uh, match on eBay. And I'm like, there it is. I've been looking for months of my life. How many hours have I searched for this thing? And I found a match to Mr. Unbeknownst. I found his, his match. Now, now this Mr. Unbeknownst, he looks a little bit more lively. He's got his carrot still. I, I don't know what happened to the other one, but he got his carrot. And so, so we were so excited that I wrapped this thing up and gave it to her on her birthday. And we knew she was just going to flip out when she saw another Mr. Unbeknownst. And so she opened it up. Of course, she flipped out over it and all this type of stuff. But then she kind of pulled me aside. And she's like, Dad, you know there's only one Mr. Unbeknownst. And I wanted to say, you gotta be kidding me, child, because you, but to her, 
There's only one, Mr. Unbeknownst, there's only one that is set apart for that specific purpose in her life. I want you to look at that. That's, that's in that way, the uniqueness of that. You could say that Mr. Unbeknownst is holy because he's set apart. He's unique. He's, the only, he's set apart for a special purpose. Now, God is said to be holy. God is set apart from his creation. But here's the interesting thing, and we already read it. It says God, God is holy, but he says to be holy as I am holy. How does that work? What does that mean? That means that God has set us apart as believers for his special purpose. So we have been set apart, just like God is set apart, but we're set apart in a special way. So I could say it this way. Holiness, in some ways, isn't so much about what we do as it is about who we are. Because we are set apart. Now, it does apply to our conduct. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying it doesn't apply to our conduct. It does apply to our conduct. But I want you to understand this, that identity always precedes conduct. Point number two is this, identity is different than reputation. You could do all the things that make you look like you have a holy life and have a reputation of that, but if your identity isn't reflecting that, reputation means nothing. I want you to see it, see it this way. Because a lot of times we think, well, I want to manage my reputation, you know, for the world to see. And it is true. I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago. That What's worse than losing our rights is losing our witness. We, we do want to be mindful of that. But, but so many of us are trying to manage our reputation to look holy, to check all the boxes, to do all of those things. But there are some times when following Jesus requires you lay down your reputation. And I mean even your good reputation. You say, how can that be? Let me share a story. You guys are all familiar with this story. It's wrapped up in the Christmas story. Remember Mary? And God comes to her, and she's engaged to this guy named Joseph. And all of a sudden, she's found to be with child. But Joseph's like, what's up? <laughs> and yet, she knew who she was. But her reputation, can you imagine the hit her reputation took? I mean, people had to think she was lying. People had to think she was an immoral person. Even though she was doing what was right, her reputation took a hit. And if we try to manage our lives all based on reputation, there's going to be times even when our good reputation has to take a hit because we're following the path of Jesus that maybe nobody knows about yet. And if all we're doing is trying to manage our lives so we don't look like a hypocrite, you may actually become one. Identity is different than reputation. I, <clears throat> eventually she was vindicated, but it was a scandalous story for a while. I remember this time in my life where I, I was leaving a church. There was, there was just stuff happening all around in, in this church that I, I just was like, I cannot be a person of integrity and stay here and to go along with this. And so I made one of the toughest decisions of my life and left it all. Left, left ministry, left, left the church, left friends, left everything. And because I knew what was right. And yet I remember having one of, the, one of the pastors pulled me aside and he said, I heard you're leaving. And he took me into his office and he said, are you and Becca okay? And I was like, yeah. 
He goes, no, I mean, are you okay? I said, do you think that I did something here that was immoral or something as to why? Yes, <laughs> he thought that I did. And so all the while when I was doing what I knew was right, but I didn't want to tarnish everybody else's reputation, I didn't want to, my reputation was taking a hit for following Jesus. And if we're so consumed with, re with reputation at the expense of identity, we may end up becoming a hypocrite as a result of that. And so I'm so thankful my identity is rooted in Jesus that I don't, I'm not moved by what is said or, you know, I can just tell you half of pastoring is not being able to tell your side of the story. So I'll just tell you that right now. Some of you guys feel like that in your life. Sometimes you can't manage your reputation. You just have to be solid in your identity. This side of the room gets it. All right, I'll just preach over here a little bit. Just try to help you out. So holiness is depicted as this river flowing out, right? You remember that picture of the river flowing out of the temple. Therein lies a truth. And here's point number three, and we'll try to wrap it up with this. Point number three is this, and this is really where I want to, I want to settle in. Real spiritual growth, real spiritual growth happens through internal obedience, not external behavior. Real spiritual growth happens when there's internal obedience on the inside and not just external behavior. So let's, let's read this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience. So we want to obey to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly, and here it is, from a pure heart. In other words, this is all flowing from the inside out, not the outside in. I know this is basic stuff, but many of us aren't living out the basic things. So it says, from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, the, the, through the living and the abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So in other words, you've had word implanted into you. You've got to hang on to that word that's implanted into you and let it begin to produce fruit that comes out of you. So let me say it this way. If you want an equation or a formula, let me give it to you this way to help you understand this. External reputation minus internal or inward obedience equals hypocrisy. You can have all the externals happening just fine, but if there's not an inward obedience and inclination towards the things of God in your heart, even if no one knows it, it's hypocrisy. And we don't want to live hypocritical lives. We want to live holy lives. So that inward obedience is such a big piece. So parents, let me just talk to parents for just a moment because we might understand this a little bit if I use this analogy. As a parent, one of the things we want to do is to have our kids act right. How many of you guys would just say amen to that? Like, please, just act right. You go to the store. Just My, my parents, I remember my parents used to say when we'd go to a restaurant or something, they'd say, okay, boys, be on your Best behavior. I remember that statement. Best behavior. So we'd go into restaurants and we'd be on our best behavior. Other people would compliment. We had, I have four brothers, so five boys, young boys sitting at a restaurant, not destroying things, evidently was a miracle. And so we'd have compliments. People come over, your boys are just so amazingly well behaved. And so check, check, check. Best behavior. But we don't want to just parent our children to have good behavior. 
Because in one sense, that's kind of easy through certain seasons. I said this last night, people didn't believe me. But it's easy to get your kids to have a certain behavior because you're bigger than them, you own the keys to the house, you own the keys to the car, you can do certain things that they can't control that you can. So to some degree, you can control what happens in their life. What we want to do, we don't want to just parent towards external behavior. What we want to do is we want to parent towards inward obedience to the things of God. We want to steward their hearts towards God. And if they get, because here's what happens. If you just parent towards external obedience and you put a chokehold on external obedience, when they get out of your house and there's no inward obedience, guess what's going to happen? All bets are off. And you see this all the time. You see Kids go out, grow up in church, did all the stuff, went to youth, checked all the boxes, looked alive on the outside. As soon as they get out into the real world, all of a sudden they stop following Jesus. It's because they weren't. And so we have to parent towards inward obedience. And so just like we have to parent towards inward obedience, do you realize that God is a loving father? And he's not just parenting us towards external behavior. He's parenting us towards that inward obedience in our heart. So I remember as a young teenager, I, I remember serving in many different areas, and I've shared it. Man, we were, in, we were missionaries, man. We, were, we would sing, and we would, I led worship at youth group. I did all this stuff, and I remember thinking, boy, I'm doing a lot of external things. I remember having these thoughts. I, I'm doing a lot of things that look like I'm following Jesus, but I don't ever want to lose that inward heart to follow Jesus. And so I remember doing some things, even as a young teenager, that I was like, I, I want to serve in ways that no one will ever find out. I want to read my Bible and all this type of stuff and, and to, to seek after God in, in times and ways that nobody ever knew and will ever know that I did. Because I don't want to just have a spiritual life that's on a stage. I want to have a real connection with Jesus. And I believe that those things are the things that sustained me as I went out into the real world. Because it wasn't just about doing the right things. And I think so many of us are caught up in just doing the right things. It was about an inward obedience in my heart. And here's the thing about fair weather fan syndrome. See, some of you guys have waited 30 years. 1985, might I say. How many of you guys just endured some painful years of the Royals throughout? Come on, some of you guys. How many of you guys watched some horrible games, saw some horrible players? I don't even know what, what they are. And you're just hoping, like, as soon as, they, as soon as we get some new people from whatever they call that place, whatever those other layers of baseball is, <laughs> I really don't know. I can't think of what it is. Far, farm from a farm. Whenever they find these people on a farm... <laughs> So that's where you find all the best baseball players is on a farm. I mean, they can load that hay. It's all, it's all practice. So whenever they find the farm people, this is going to be our year. And you were holding out that this is our year. And you got disappointed. And you, oh, this is it. Oh, this guy, this is the one. This is the one. We brought him from wherever, from some other team. And this is going to be the year. And and how many of you guys endured so many disappointments throughout the years? So, so here's my point. I didn't. I didn't care. <laughs> Amen. What does that mean? 
what does that mean, Dave? I don't know. <laughs> He's a Raiders fan. We'll love him later. <laughs> oh, it's painful, Dave. He said, I, I haven't been waiting 50 years. Oh, man. Here, here's, my, here's my point, though. You guys went, some of you guys went through some really hard years as a Royals fan. And so when they won, you experienced a joy I could never experience. No matter how much fun I was having at the parade, no matter how much fun I was having watching the thing, you guys experienced a level of joy there is no way I could comprehend. And here, here's what happens spiritually to us. Some of us, if we do not allow God to do the deep work in the hard times, in the hard years, and in the internal places of our heart that no one will ever see, if we don't allow that to happen, we also won't be able to experience the extreme joy of what it's like to live a life that follows Jesus. Fairweather fans live a surface life. And some of you have experienced this where you're wondering, why is it that other people seem to be on fire and I don't feel it? Why is it that some people go to a TNT, which by the way, if you missed TNT Thursday, you missed it, okay? I'm just saying. Why is it that some people show up at a TNT and just have this massive encounter with God and God seems to, and they seem to have breakthroughs and I just don't feel it? Fairweather fan. If we don't allow the deep work to go, we won't experience the deep joy that God has. That's how it works. Real spiritual growth happens inwardly, not externally. This is so important for us to catch. So as we jump back out of 1 Peter and jump into uh, Revelation chapter three, the, the next following verses in two and three, it says, Here, here's the encouragement that I have for you guys, for all of us. Wake up and strengthen what? remains and is about to die. In other words, there's some part of us that's still there. Those of us who have who've settled in and we've, we've, we've cut our losses and we said we're just gonna settle in for what, what it's okay. There's a part of you that still remains that wants to follow God. Strengthen that which remains. Wake up, it's not too late. That's what he's saying, it's not too late. Strengthen what remains. It says, it is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. So he's saying, wake up, remember, strengthen, go back to those first things. And some of you, if you would just be honest for just a moment in the house of God, just be honest for a moment, you've become a consumer Christian. You become a fair weather fan. You don't experience the great joy you used to because we're not experiencing the great depth of the work of God that we used to. You used to, maybe you used to serve, but now you don't. Maybe you used to give, but now you don't. Maybe you used to go, but now you don't. Maybe you used to pray, but now you don't. I, maybe you're doing all those things still, but you know that it's not really alive in your heart. Can we just be honest about that for a moment? If, if you are honest, maybe... You've been acting more in a hip, hypocritical way than you really want to admit. Can I lovingly call us to repentance today? Can I prophetically call us up higher? Here's what I want you to see. Even if you have been found 
dead this morning, like spiritually, you're like, man, it's not what it used to be. We serve a resurrection God. That, that if that's where you're at, you're in the right place and you're serving Jesus and he is the God of the resurrection. He's the resurrection and the life. Can I prophetically just call us up higher? Here's, here's the thing. Journey Church is all about moving forward. In fact, it's right there in the name, Journey. It, it's like wherever you're at, if you're a seasoned believer, you can take the next step, whatever that is. If you're a new believer, you can take the next step, whatever that is. If you are a consumer Christian fair weather fan, you can take the next step in Jesus. Isn't that good news today? Isn't that good news that we're not, that, that, you know, God, God loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. So what's your next step? Now, I wanna encourage you in your next step, because it's gonna be different for everybody. I wanna encourage you in your next step. Don't start with an external behavior. Start with an inward obedience. Because here's what I found if the inward obedience happens, the external behavior just happens next. Start with an inward obedience. All right, let's wrap this up. First Peter chapter one, verse 18, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Let's have the worship team come back up at this time. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, we serve a resurrection God because of what has happened on the cross. All things are possible. I wanna invite everybody to stand up with us and I wanna also invite you as we're coming to a close if you would take just a moment to bow your heads and to close your eyes. We do this not because we have to. We do this to focus in on what God wants to speak to us on the inside, apart from all distractions, just to kind of create a space on the inside. And I want to speak to some of us who, if you're honest, you feel like that video where everything you touch, your impurity it seems to be transferring. <laughs> Some of you feel like, man, every relationship I touch, it's breaking. Every situation I find myself in, it's just not going well. And so you've been acting. You've been trying to act good. You've been trying to do the right things. You've been trying to be good enough, but you're falling short. And you've wondered, is there hope for me? Like, can there be hope for me? And I just want to remind you, or I just want to tell you, some of this is going to be brand new for some of you that the hope for you is not found in your acting or your efforts. It's not found in your external behavior. It's found when a holy God transfers his goodness to you. When a holy God transfers his righteousness to you. That's where your hope is found. It, it is, his purity doesn't come through external behavior but his grace can come in and produce an inward response of the heart. And the external start to happen as a result. And so I just wanna remind you in this moment that the situation we find ourselves in as humanity is, is this, that, that sin entered into the bloodline of humanity through Adam and Eve. 
And every single person who's born in that bloodline has been born into a world that has fallen and a world that is tainted into sin. And there's no, there is no hope in trying to be good enough or trying to save yourself because you, were, you have that blood in you. That's how you were born into this thing. But here's where the hope is found. Jesus came, God in the flesh, God blood that hadn't been tainted by the bloodline of sin. It was God in the flesh. And he, he came with, the Bible says that his blood is pure. He's the perfect, sinless lamb of God. There, there's no way any of us could save ourselves, but Jesus with pure blood said, I will take their place and I will become their purity. And so on the cross, he took all of our sin and all of our shame upon himself. And it's called the great exchange because he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And he offered a way for us to get to God, not through our own efforts, not through our bloodline, but through the precious blood of the sinless lamb of God. And he rose from the dead and he holds out his hand. It's like, almost like he's got that coal that he's reaching out to you. And he said, if you would just come, if you would just come, God's purity, God's righteousness, his holiness could transfer to you and what's dead in you can now be made alive. The Bible says that, that if, if you come to Jesus, it's like you're going from death to life. In fact, spiritually you are. And so some of you have never said yes to following Jesus. You've been trying to do it your own way. You've done everything you know to do, do to be good, but, but you know it's falling short. You know you can't do it on your own. And in fact, you're doomed to do it on your own. But here comes Jesus. And today he's calling out to you. He's reaching out to you. And you're here today, and the Bible says that if we believe in our heart, if there's this inward response in our heart, and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved, that we'll be transferred from death to life, that we'll become a brand new creation on the inside, that the old will be gone, the new will come, that this can be the start of day one of your life. And if that's you, right now you just feel like this, this pounding in your chest, you feel like the Holy Spirit, that's, that's what it is, the Holy Spirit is knocking on your door. Jesus is knocking on your door right now saying, come. And if you're here today and you say, I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to start following Jesus today. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I need to know if we need to take a moment out of this service to pray for you. And if that's you with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just right now, just lift up your hand. Lift up your hand right now so I can see it. All right, see that hand. Just hold it up. Hold it up high if you can. All right, right here, right there. Anybody else? See you back there, back there. Anyone else? Over there. We're going to take just a moment, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's really simple. We're just talking to God. It's, it's really simple. There's nothing magical about this prayer, but the Bible says that, again, if we believe in our heart, let's, let's speak that out with our mouth. It's like we're declaring that. We're starting brand new. It's like the start of the journey. And I'm going to help you do that. And, and I'm going to supply the words, but you supply the faith. So right now, let's all pray this together. Say, Lord Jesus... Thank you for dying for me. 
Thank you for taking my place. I believe you rose from the dead and that you give eternal life. I turn from my old ways and I turn to my new life. I surrender all. I receive your grace by faith right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for a revelation to happen for every person who prayed that prayer today, that they are brand new, that they have brand new spiritual DNA, that the old really is gone, and that they are brand new creations. We bind any lie of the enemy that would tell them different. Lord, we speak new life right now, that today is a brand new beginning. Lord, we're so thankful for what you've done on the cross, that even though we find that areas of our life that have grown, grown cold, that you can make them alive again. And we declare that over this place and over all these people in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship one more time.